You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and my special guest this week on the podcast is Jane Faulkner. Jane is the Director of Equine Assisted Therapy Australia and she has a, uh, her bio reads quite long, she has a, a list of degrees in different healing modalities that's um, as long as your arm and uh, in this conversation I chat with Jane about how this whole healing journey for her started and how her healing journey turned into a career in helping others with their journey. Jane Faulkner, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about having you. You know, you're one of those people that I've had so many people in Australia especially in like in the equine assisted therapy community, they're kind of like, you need to get Jane Faulkner. Like she's the, she's the business. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have you on here. Ah, that's lovely. I'm blushing on my end. <laughs> You're blushing on your end. So yeah. I'm reading, I was reading your list of your, your bio, your CV sort of thing, and you have dabbled your toes in a lot of stuff. And I mean, I and it's all kind of the same stuff, all therapy type stuff. But so you have a master's in, how do you pronounce that? Is it gestalt or gestalt? I say gestalt. Some people say gestalt. <laughs> okay. So you have a master's in gestalt psychotherapy. You're a somatic experiencing practitioner. You're an equine assisted psychotherapist. You have a certificate in initiatic art therapy, which I had to look up before I got on here. <laughs> you have a Bachelor of Nursing and you are certified in some sort of yoga that I'm not sure I'm going to try to pronounce too. What is that? Ayanga yoga. Ayanga yoga. Okay, let's, let's, let's start there. Tell us, we're going to go through these things one at a time because, you know, normally I, um, normally I get into people's stories about their journey that led them to where they're, they're at, but you've got... So many qualifications. I want to. I want to at least explain some of them to people, so we know what we're talking about. So, Iyengar yoga is what? So it's a type of yoga developed by a man called um, BKS Iyengar, and he kind of developed this yoga. So, as a young person, he had tuberculosis and mm. was very poor in India, and he's brother-in-law was a famous yogi so he was kind of sent to learn from this famous yogi to become healthier and so he developed this type of yoga that is very focused on alignment so finding the correct alignment in your body and really on transform transforming who you are as a person through your body so it's very much he's also kind of created it so that anyone can do yoga so 
he's made it really therapeutic so you can have high blood pressure and do yoga or be pregnant. And he's kind of known as the person that brought yoga to the West. So, Mm. yeah, and it's a really strict kind of and regimented type of yoga. It's not a, a flowy type of yoga. Right. You, you, there was a word you used before. You said it's very, what did you say it was? It's not structured. Regi- it's about alignment. Alignment. Alignment, is, yeah. Is, uh, is it about like alignment, like make sure that your, your knee is over your inside big toe type alignment or is it more internal alignment like head, heart, gut? Is, is, it, is it mental alignment or is it a physical alignment thing? Well, both, because he kind of believes that it, you start from the outside in. So you start mm. from the gross and you move to the subtle. So when mm. you first start teaching people, you are kind of just supporting them to feel the four corners of the feet because most of us walk around without any awareness that we have different parts of our feet. So you're kind of teaching people and that how to realise their knees above their ankle and and then you make it more and more refined. So draw the outer thigh towards the hip, extend the inner groin towards the inner knee, and then even more subtle, move the skin from the inside of the thigh to the outside of the mm. thigh. And then you just you start to feel um, when the energy's flowing, I guess, in your body and where it's stuck. So it leads to starts with the gross but it leads to the subtle and I think part of the beauty of how he taught yoga is your mind has something to do so your mind has to be with you in the body looking for what it's looking for so he'll say is the inner and outer right calf both pressing down evenly and your mind has to actually really go there to feel that which for me was a really good thing because I as a young person, didn't live in my body. I think I live, lived outside my body. And then I did a type of yoga called Ashtanga yoga for about 10 years, which is a lot more along the breath and a lot more quite intense, like legs behind the head and intense back, back bends and stuff like that. But I think because I wasn't in my body, I could do that intense yoga because I didn't feel much. And mm. I loved Ashtanga yoga because it was extreme stretching, so I'd feel something on the extremes. Whereas then when I went to Iyengar yoga, it was like, no, you're pushing onto all your joints, and it made me come right back to actually being in my body and keeping my mind on a part of my body and then supporting my mind to spread to the rest of my body. So Iyengar yoga for me was quite life-changing with how I was able to be in my body. We're going to come back to that. Okay, so another thing that you are is a somatic experiencing practitioner. And mm. it sounds like Dayanga yoga is very some very somatic, so along the same lines. But can you tell us, in, some, in case some people don't know, what does a somatic experiencing practitioner do? Sure. So we support people to heal through the body. So, again, it's kind of... Um, If I sit in front of a client, I get really curious about what they notice in their body. And it's developed by a man called Peter Levine. And he actually studied animal behavior and got really curious that most 
wild animals. Oh, you know Peter Levine. You've spoken about waking, him before. Waking the tiger, Peter Levine? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yep. So as a therapist with somatic experiencing, I'm curious about supporting the body to release what's stuck or to complete wasn't what it wasn't able to complete. So they're releasing trauma, basically. Yeah, releasing trauma, and even having an awareness that it's kind of there. Right. Yes. Well, that's the thing with that. <laughs> that if you you know, it's not taught in school, so you go through your whole life having this stuck stuff in you, and don't even know it's stuck there, and you think that's normal. Totally. For me, that was uh, massive because my birth, my parents had a car accident. And um, so they were, mum was in labour, they were on the way to the hospital. My poor dad ran into the car in front of him and the police had to escort mum to hospital. So my, that birth kind of impacted how I was in the world because I had that shock trauma so young. And it was a bit Mm. of a family joke, you know, that they had this car accident and I didn't realise how much it had it impacted me or how I was able to be in the world until I was studying somatic experiencing and when we came to study freeze and that was when my body brought forward the impact of my birth my whole birth kind of my body redid my birth in that um when we were playing with freeze as trainees so it's really powerful you're kind of jumping ahead because you're getting to the why you got to do the things that you're doing. Let's <laughs> let's go through the Sorry. list. Let's go through the list first. So that's a somatic experiencing. You have a master's yep. in Gestalt psychotherapy. What what's different about that? Why is that different than some other types of psychotherapy? Yeah, so it was developed by a man called Fritz Perls, and he. It's very much about working with what's happening in the here and now. So it's not about, so it's about kind of, so there's a few pillars to it. There's field theory, which is um, exploring what happens in the field. So as a therapist, I'm curious about what's happening in the field between me and the client, and I'm acknowledging my ground or everything that I bring and the client's ground and everything that they bring. It's phenomenological, which means you're working with exactly what is unfolding in the present moment. And working phenomenologically means you don't assume anything and nothing's more important than anything else. So in my conversation with you, what's happening in the room around you and what you're saying and what your body's doing are all equal. So it's very much about being in the here and now, being curious about everything. And I see being a therapist in the Gestalt model as me walking alongside someone and me not knowing more about the other person, but me helping that person get more and more curious and more aware of what they do in relationship. So I see my job is it feels a bit like I'm a bit of a detective and I'm getting more and more curious about that person. I'm supporting them to get more and more curious about themselves. What I love about Gestalt is it doesn't put people in boxes. It doesn't label people. It just supports people to keep getting curious and to really accept who they are and what they find out about themselves. 
So we talk about um, creative adjustments in Gestalt. And a creative adjustment is kind of how you creatively adjusted to survive. So we support people to become aware of their creative adjustments and why they had to develop those and how they support them in their life. So I feel like it's a really accepting, beautiful way to do therapy where I'm not the one with all the knowledge or all the power. I'm just walking alongside whoever I'm journeying with. The creative adjustments sound a bit like, um, you know, like coping strategies. Is that kind of what they are? You know, the, the way yeah. you've showed up in the world because of the things that happened and you could be showing up differently? Yep, definitely. Exactly okay. that. Yep, coping strategies. Um, so what else you got here on your little bio? Uh, Equine-assisted psychotherapy. How long have you been doing that? 13 years now. So, yeah, and that really came out of left field. I wanted to be an international yoga teacher. (laughs) And then I had a um, equine therapy session at a retreat and it just blew me away. And then uh, trained with a man named Dewey Freeman and I just felt like I'd come home. It's really, I, I really believe in destiny because of that. Like it just kind of came into my life and then I got given my horse and given a job and, yeah. We'll get into the rest how we got there. Let me get through this stuff. <laughs> um, you also have a Bachelor of Nursing. A lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people would stop there and go, I've got a Bachelor of Nursing, I'm a nurse. Mm. Were, you a, were you a nurse first? I was. I was a nurse okay. first, yeah. Okay, we'll get to that later. And then the... The other one we haven't talked about is the Certificate in Initiatic Art Therapy. Yes. What exactly is Initiatic Art Therapy? So it was developed by a woman called Cornelia Elbrecht, and she's a German woman that came out to Australia and kind of brought art therapy to Australia. And she's kind of been a bit cutting edge because she's combined a lot of Ah, just these things that we're realising are really important for healing, you know, movement, uh, dance, sound, um, the body. And so she's now called sensory motor art therapy. I'm not really sure why she called it initiatic, maybe because doing the course is like an initiation. It really takes you deep. Yeah. So, and, and it's... Uh, she spoke about, when, I remember the first weekend with her and she spoke about um, the power of art therapy because we're using our hands and she spoke about how the hands are one of the first or the skin of the hands are one of the first things to develop in the womb. And mm. so when we use our hands, it go, can go so far back and so deep. And that's what I found in doing art therapy was it, bypassed my brain and all the filters of my brain and we would just kind of I would create something and not really know what I was creating and then having a session with someone about it it was kind of mind-blowing what I had created and what I needed to work on but not from a conscious place from my unconscious right and it came out in the art yeah yeah 
Wow, that's pretty cool. Clay or paint. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so now let's unravel this whole thing. And usually, <laughs> usually when I'm talking to someone, like we go along for a while, you're born, and then this, and then that, and then finally you have the trauma. You had the trauma before the birth. So was it the the actual impact of the car crash? Yeah, I think it was the impact of the car crash, and then because mum was in labour, and then the cars crashed, and then um, the labour stopped and went to hospital, and then. Apparently I came quickly. Um, but like I said, I, did, I didn't kind of realise it was, it was a family joke and I didn't realise it was an issue until studying the SE and then looking back on myself as a child and how, like I don't have a lot of memories from being a child. I remember being outside a lot. I had, I've got three brothers and we lived in a place called Waterford on the Logan River. So we had an acre and it backed onto a river. And um, we were outside all the time. So we were swimming across the river and up and down the river and up trees. And I remember that being, you know, loving that and, and being really loving, I guess, moving my body. But when I think of me with people, I feel like I was probably quite dissociated a lot or not or found it hard to get a sense of who I was. So was always if someone said, what do you want, I'd always be like, what do you want? Or I, I had no sense of Jane, I think. And mm. I think part of that goes back to that early shock trauma. Yeah. And kind of that sense of only having the option of freezing as a as a baby. Yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with that sensation. Um, mm. A lot of times I talk to people who are therapists and they got into doing therapy, like like being a therapist because they had some therapy, they had some problems, they had some therapy, and they thought that was so amazing. I want to help other people, but it sounds like you were doing that the somatic experiencing stuff before you even discovered this trauma. Would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah. I guess so I think because of what happened when I was a baby, when I was a late teenager I developed chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm, And so around 15, 16 I got really bad acne and developed chronic fatigue and that I think set me on my journey too because I got really curious about health then. Okay, um, I got a question. I got a question. Yes. yes. My hands up. Like, miss, <laughs> miss, I got a question. <laughs> so I had cystic acne as a teen. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. Okay. And I was at the time at I was bad enough to where I was a test pilot for a drug called Roaccutane, yeah. which I think ended up being Accutane. But you had to be a certain level of severity in order for a, a um, dermatologist to be able to use you as a, as a, as a guinea pig. And it wasn't until, you know, no one else in my family had it, you know, and it wasn't until, oh, it's probably got to be in the last three or four years, one day I'm like, hmm, Google, cystic acne, trauma. Guess what? Mm. They are linked. 
Yeah. Or at least some stuff that I read, they're, they're linked. What do you know about that? Yeah, totally, totally. Like I look, I'm grateful for my acne now because I see that um, and definitely like I'd learnt to suppress and disconnect from my body, which is trauma, right? And so all the emotions and stuff that I wasn't expressing was coming out through my skin. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pause and stare out the window for a minute. <laughs> yeah. What about migraines? Did you have migraines? I didn't. Uh, I, I, hadn't, so I had migraines too. Yeah. No, not that I remember. I, I know that everyone thought I was a very calm person and I remember mum, like, when I started with the acne and um, the chronic fatigue taking me to a Cairo and him saying how stressed out I was, like how stressed my system was. And I guess that's what I've learned through the SE is that I have a very sensitive system and I get overwhelmed easy. And I've learned all these coping strategies to not even know that's happening to myself. And so I've learned to override or push past all my body signals of take a breath, you know, I'm getting tight or racy or whatever the thing is. And, um, yeah, so I think my body was just responding. And that's where I think the chronic fatigue came through. It could no longer function at that level of sympathetic or, or being stressed, overthinking yeah. everything and, um, and over worrying about, like I've always been very sensitive to my environment and the people in my environment, but not so much to myself. So I've had to learn to reverse that and get more sensitive to what's happening in my body and to kind of take more care of myself rather than I know my younger life I just pushed my body to do things to kind of fit in or be accepted or um, not stand out or, or whatever I felt it needed to do to get me through in that moment. So. Well, that's, but that's quite a strong, that's quite a strong human instinct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So with your um, all this all this bio you've got here, so the nursing was this was the start of it. It was. I had no clue. So I was really interested in natural therapies because with my acne and the chronic fatigue, I was really interested in getting to the bottom of it. And I know that roaccutane was around at that time, but. I was worried about the side effects to the rest of my body. So, and Did I was, they know about the side effects then? They were talking about that it could damage your kidneys and your liver and as a woman could impact um, reproductive mm. capacity and that kind of stuff. You know, I was talking to someone about it oh, recently in the last year or so and they were talking about how there was quite an relatively high incidence of suicide ah. while on it. Uh-huh. And this is one of those things where it depends how you look at things. I said, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Um, you might think it's the drug that causes it, but think about, think about teenagers who 
at that point in their life are quite concerned about how they look mm. and you look like a leper, it, is it the Roaccutane that causes the suicides or is it that, you know, yeah. they're in such a bad state that, that the state itself, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer, but it's, it's, it, was, it was an interesting, you know, someone told me that the, the, there was a high rate of suicide with it and that it was that the drug was bad. And I said, well, I wouldn't be necessarily blaming the drug yet. Yeah. Except, well, that's as you're talking, I'm, and when you say the word leper, I can relate to feeling like that and the shame that came with it, you yeah. know, this acne and um, feeling dirty, even though I know how hygienic I was to not spread it. Right. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking uh, thinking that and also how whether the, because definitely for myself I'd learnt to suppress emotion and expression and yep. whether the, you know, that can lead to suicidal ideation and, and again, what comes, what, is it just that state of being and then you add the rat uricotane, like it's, who knows, yeah. Yeah, the side effects I experienced most, it dries everything out, like your your eyeballs dry out, the palms of your hands peel, your lips are always dry, cracking. But it did work, though. It did, you know, I was one of the cases that actually worked quite well on. You know, it, yeah. it, pulled, it pulled it up. It doesn't, doesn't take the scars away, but it, it stopped it from being an ongoing thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a painful experience, isn't it? I know it was for me having acne at that age. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how bad yours was, but mine's mine was mine was pretty bad. Mm. Yeah, mine was too. Yeah, but like I said, I'm grateful because it kind of led me down a rabbit hole of health and healing and getting curious about myself and. Mm. Yeah, personally, I think I could have I could have skipped that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like yeah. I'm glad I had yeah. that one. I had enough. I had enough other stuff. I, I did, <laughs> like uh, I, had, uh-huh. I had my plate full already. I didn't need that one too. Um, yeah. So, did you before you? Okay, well, tell, tell us about what got you into the nursing, and then I want to. What I'm really interested in is is what got you into the mental health field from there. Yeah. Sure. So nursing, I was really interested in health, um, knew I wanted to work with people and kind of I guess mum and dad were like, why don't you do nursing? Mum was a nurse. So studied nursing. Um, this is where my chronic fatigue was pretty bad. So mm-hmm. liked understanding about health. Um yeah, loved working with people. It was challenging learning nursing in uni and then going to, to work on the hospitals and actually not having knowledge but not skills. Mm. And nursing in the hospitals, I loved working with people. I think I got really disillusioned with the system, could see that it wasn't kind of a health system, I guess. It wasn't, you know, teaching people about healthy food or healthy ways to be in the world. And I could see a lot of people not getting better. And I worked, 
yeah, I worked really hard as a nurse, so I took it really seriously and I couldn't kind of switch off when I got home. But what got me into the mental health field was working in um, adolescent mental health and adult mental health and on a, like on a nurse rotation. really curious. Yeah, yeah. So okay. working yeah. in, so at Logan, I worked at Logan Hospital, which was a really lower socioeconomic area. And I worked in the adolescent mental health unit there. And that was really eye-opening for me. And just because I was only young, man, I would have been um, 20, 21 myself. And so I got really curious, you know, why are these people so unwell? What's making them unwell? And I, I would read their charts and all of them would have huge amounts of trauma, um, yeah, child abuse, sexual abuse, there'd just be trauma in their histories. So I just got really curious about that and what made them different to me. Um, but so was curious, knew I loved working with people, didn't really believe in the system, and that's when I went overseas. And my chronic fatigue syndrome was pretty bad over there, so I nursed overseas in hospitals in London. And that's when I started really exploring different therapies over there. So saw shamans, saw people that were bushflower remedies, saw lots of different things. And that's also when I started yoga over in London. And it was um, mostly to heal that chronic fatigue. Sorry, I thought you were going to ask a question. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about, so what made you decide to go to London? I think um, just felt like I needed adventure. Um, my dad kind of really suggested that my brother and I go and travel. Um, probably, probably needed us to move out of home maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. So my brother and I went overseas and... Yeah, we had relatives in a place called Kenilworth near Coventry, so we stayed there a few months. I worked in the pub um, waiting for my nurse's registration to get over there and then went and worked as a nurse in the hospitals over there and then got an amazing job um, with a really famous English family as their private nurse. So that was amazing because I started work at 6 at night and I'd finish at 10 in the morning and all the day, so between 10 and 6, I would kind of explore London and see all the different therapists that I could see there. So, And I would go to Neil's Yard and there was an awesome esoteric bookstore there, so I would find books and get psychic readings and I saw all different kinds of... I, I used to see an amazing shaman when I lived in London. She was really helpful and I was really trying to get to the bottom of the chronic fatigue and the acne and try to work out who I was. I think going overseas, I realised how I had put myself in a box. You know, I thought Jane was this thing that all the people around me related to back at home. And then when I went over to London, I had this realisation I could be whoever I wanted to be. So I kind of really 
followed my interests and my curiosities and read a lot and um, I think my flatmates thought I was really weird because I was in a flat full of 10 Aussies right on Kensington Park and they were all into partying. I was, I've never been into partying. I couldn't tolerate alcohol. <laughs> so I was more yeah, brewing up Chinese herbs for my skin and going away to India, studying yoga. I went to South America with my brother. Um, yeah, just exploring all these other things. That's where I read Ishmael and mm. the Alchemist and I was just reading all these things that were making me see the world in a different way, reading The Journey of Souls and um, read a few books on shamanism and really loved the idea of shamanism, you know, kind of um, reclaiming parts of yourself. And, yeah, so had an amazing time, went to India, studied yoga, went all through Europe. Um, yeah, spent three years over there just kind of really exploring all these different modalities and myself working out who I was. So, yeah. So you skipped over a lot of good stuff then, so we're going to back up a little bit. You know, (laughs) the podcast is about people sharing their stories and their journeys and in one sentence there you said, yeah, I worked for these really famous people and then you went on. What kind of famous people were they? Were they royalty famous, musician famous, sporting famous, rich famous? They were rich famous and I was totally naive. So they owned a lot of famous things over in England. And I kind of didn't realise. So I remember one morning, so she was a sir and he was, uh, she was a lady and he was a sir. He was a sir, yeah. And and her saying to him, oh, I wonder if we'll be on the Times Greatest Rich list in the morning. And I remember him laughing and <laughs> I thought it was a joke. And then they came back in the morning and they were number two. And I was like, wow. So they were amazing people. He was in his 90s. She was in her 80s. And I had to, he'd had a few strokes, so I just had to be there to make sure he didn't, that he was okay overnight. And he was a really beautiful soul. So his grandfather had created their wealth and he'd kind of helped build the company and they'd lost their daughter in a really tragic way. And he would have these amazing conversations with me at night, like just about life and about what was important. And... um. He would say, you know, people think money is everything. And he said, but the more money you have, the more you've got to fight to keep it. And he said, you don't know who your true friends are. And he was just, they were both beautiful people. They gave away heaps of money to charity. She sold an emerald necklace and built a whole hospital wing. They were always thinking about how they could help people. Um, they were really, really good people. They taught me a lot. We used to have David Attenborough for dinner and, (laughs) and, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. And different famous people. And that taught me a lot too. David Attenborough was just beautiful. Like he would talk to me like an equal and, you know, talk about Australia and all the different things he'd done in Australia, other rich people or people you would know would see right through me because I was the hired help, they kind of, so, and um, the people I worked for would would kind of 
keep talking to me. They treated me like a daughter. They were going to put me through medical school. At that stage, I was thinking about doing medicine. Um, yeah, so it was amazing, amazing experience that time for me in London and working for these people and seeing, yeah, just just gaining their, from their wisdom, I think, and their insights into because they'd had a, an amazing lifestyle. I mean, they both had lovers and because they had houses all over Europe and they both had big lifestyles and then had this tragedy with their daughter and I think, yeah, she'd done, so they had, I can't remember if it was her or her parents had rescued um, Jewish children during the Holocaust and so they she'd come from a really wealthy family too. Uh, but, yeah, just beautiful, good people. And it was a great experience for me working for them and, and being in that world and then just being able to work on myself in the day when I wasn't with them. I was just thinking about the like the juxtaposition of working for these, you know, basically the second wealthiest people in, in England. Who was number one? The Queen. Mm. <laughs> um, going from I can't there, remember. Going from there to you went straight from there to India, didn't you? I did. I did. So and what's I, that like? Yeah, it was a massive shock to my system. I was so naive. So, because I'd travelled all through Europe with my brother, I'd been to Turkey. I was like, oh, I'll be fine. And I remember getting off the plane into the airport and expecting there to be a lounge and that I could sit down and go through my lonely planet and work out where I was going to stay. And I remember getting off the plane and just being surrounded by these thousands of rickshaw drivers. And it was 3 a.m. in the morning. And oh, I was terrified. So I ended up just looking at any other Western woman and saying, hi, <laughs> can I come with you? <laughs> and this woman that was there was a medical student and she was coming over to volunteer in the hospitals and she said, yeah, I would love you to come with me. So we went to the hostel where she was um staying and stayed there and I just remember that rickshaw drive from the airport to where we stayed and uh, just how mind-blowing it was like I you know there's dead bodies on the road there was um, people with no arms and legs on those wooden platforms with wheels there was cows there was it just blew my mind it India really blew my circuits, I think. I had no, I just, yeah, had no idea of uh, just the assault on the senses that you get in India, you know, the sights, the sounds, the smells and and the people, like the amount of people. So, yeah, but I, I went, I stayed with her and, um, and then went to an ashram where I studied yoga for, for a few months. And even that experience, getting to the ashram and I could hear them chanting. <laughs> I remember arriving and thinking, oh, my God, is this a cult? <laughs> but just loving it. And that it really changed my life, being immersed in yoga and meditation. And 
um, and chanting and the whole uh, yogic lifestyle, I guess, like of and that yogic philosophy and so we'd get up really early at sunrise and we would meditate and then um, do our yoga practice and then learn yoga philosophy and do our karma yoga, which mine was cleaning the toilets. <laughs> and, yeah, it was amazing but challenging. I, I stayed in that ashram and then I went to Amas, you know, the hugging, the hugging. The, the- um Hugging Saint, I went and stayed in her mm. ashram. Not for long. I didn't stay there long. I found that one really intense, just just how the people were there and how I saw her as another human and I just this how I don't even know how to describe it. These people would almost get into a frenzy about, oh, my God, she's going here or she's going there or um and I remember meeting her because you meet her and you line up and you get a hug and she hugged me and then asked me to sit beside her. So I was one of a few of us that sat beside her and I could just, I don't know, I just, I, the, how, I, don't, I don't, can't think of the word, but how these people are not having, it's like they didn't have a sense of self or something, they were just, and that freaked me out, like just how swayed they were by what she said and where she went. And, yes, yeah, so I didn't stay there long. And then I went back to London. I remember getting back to London and thinking how clean the streets were. And <laughs> I remember asking one of my flatmates, have they cleaned Have they cleaned the streets? And just, yeah, so many less people. So, but, yeah, India was life-changing. So when you... Were you into the yoga before you went there? I was. I had. So in London, I used to run. I ran since I was a teenager. I think that's how I managed stress. Um, And I got shin splints because I used to run around Kensington Park. And I got shin splints and I I needed to do something. I realise now I'm a person that needs to move their body. And I thought I'll try this yoga out. And it was before yoga was cool. And um, I went to this class and it was with this big Austrian man of all people and ah, I loved it. He worked, he worked as hard, which is what I needed. I think if it had been flaky and flowy, I wouldn't have. But um, it made me feel my muscles. I remember walking out of there and my legs felt like they were walking on a cloud because he'd worked us so hard and I was hooked after that class. So... I would go to a yoga class every day while I worked for the people I worked for. And it was when I was doing that, um, I was like, I want to learn how to teach this. So that's why I went to India and did a teacher training over there and, yeah, and came back to London. So tell me a bit more about ashram life. Like, so you get up early in the morning. Uh, How long of meditation would you do in the morning? Uh, an hour, an hour of, of meditation, two hours of yoga, uh, an hour of chanting, and then a few hours of learning about yoga philosophy. And then in the afternoon, it'd be more yoga and then another hour of meditation. So, and then and some toilet really, cleaning in the middle. <laughs> yes, and then toilet cleaning with a coconut husk. 
in the middle. So <laughs> it was actually funny. We we were in a, um, a huge group of us that had to, well, they chose who did what tasks. And in my head, I'm like, oh, please don't make me have to clean the toilets. Please don't make me have to clean the toilets. And originally I got another job and then they changed it and I had to clean the toilets. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I created that with my thoughts. I remember thinking that back then, like, oh, man, did I create maybe, that? <laughs> maybe you did. Um, so what's, what's an hour of chanting a day like? What's that do for you? When... Uh, it's really powerful. So when you let go of the resistance to it. So I remember starting and my Western brain being like, oh, my God, because there's people around that are really into it. It's almost like they're on drugs. They're so into mm-hmm. it, you know, clapping. And by the end of the time there, I, I was like that. It's, right, you get into that ecstatic state. Yeah, totally. But it's it's a very heart opening state. It's mm. um yeah, it was when I think back, I think the chanting is what had the most profound effect on me, actually. That chanting, that singing with a group of people, that getting into rhythm, that and just having fun. Yeah. Um the reason that one of the reasons I asked that is because recently at the the podcast summit we had in Australia my yeah. son's girlfriend came with us and she is a yoga instructor. She, t- yeah. she runs yoga retreats in Hawaii. And at the summit, well, at the first summit we had last year in San Antonio, Texas, we had a movement session every time we came back from a break. Well, first thing in the morning, after a break, after lunch, getting people back in their bodies. And we had different people do it. And we asked Nicole, would she like to do it? And she just stood up on stage and she rocked it. But at one stage there, one of her movement sessions after we come back from, maybe it was after afternoon break that first afternoon, she had everybody doing something, but then she had them start to hum. Mm. And there was 200 people all humming at the same time in the same room. It goes right through you. It's like, it was like, I would love to do a lot of that. Like, like, and and then when you said the chanting, I thought, I bet the chanting is, because I know there's a lot of uh, chanting involved in chanting, sometimes drumming in like shamanic practices and things like that. Like that repetitive sound, especially with a group of people just getting in into a, an ecstatic state. Yeah. And I guess it's ecstatic but grounded, you know, like, and I think the more I'm understanding about the polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve and the impact of sound on the vagus nerve, and I think of at the beginning of every Iyengar class, we om and we say an invocation and it's kind of an invocation acknowledging all the teachers that have gone before us that kind of have led the way to us doing this practice and I just know how I'm different after I do that chant I'm just makes me more aware 
one of those the people that have led the path before me, but it just it feels like it brings me in to mm. myself. Yeah, like like not many other things do that, and especially the om. You know, the om's such a powerful sound. Yeah, yeah how many hertz is that? It's uh, can't remember what it is. I'm not sure either. And the humming, so there's a type of pranayama or breathing practice in yoga and it's called brahmari and it's that hum and it it's working directly with that vagus nerve and it mm. it has this really beautiful effect of switching on that parasympathetic that kind of and it, for me it takes me like deeply internal but it's having that internal state where you still have an awareness you know like you're not not numbed down, you're quiet but aware. Mm. I think sound is really powerful, an untapped potential for healing, I reckon. Yeah, no, I think it's the, the vibration of sound is, I don't know, for, for, for me, someone who, you know, spent a, long, a lot of my life, most of my life dissociated and kind of in a freeze state, a numb sort of a state, sound you can't, it's almost like you can't numb it out. But I'll tell you what, something really interesting, um, you know, I've, always, I've not had much in the way of emotions going on and I used to hear like people drive around with their cars with the big speakers in the back with that bass going boom, boom, boom and I used to think, what are they doing? And it's never done anything for me. And recently, probably in the last six months, I was driving somewhere in the truck and that, that, bass was hitting me in the chest and I could feel it like an emotion. And I was like, well, that's new. That that oh. same sound did not affect me that way before. So things are starting to crack a little bit. Mm-hmm. How, how yeah, was but, that when you first found, felt it? It was, you know, I've, I've, you know, I felt things like that before. Um, a lot of times on, say, plant medicine journeys or whatever, but, but it was like, oh, yeah, it was, it was, it was very cool. It was, it was more, it was more of a, I was probably more in my head a bit about it, like thinking about, oh, well, something's finally working. Oh, it's actually, you know, I wasn't just taking it in. I was kind of getting in my head about it, but that's me in my head. Um, so you get back from India, you go mm-hmm. back to London, the streets mm-hmm. are clean. Yes. <laughs> what, what comes next? So then I finished working with the the people I was working with um, because I was like, oh, you know, I'm in London because I was missing all the stuff my friends were doing. You know, they were going out on weekends and because my job was seven days a week. And so um, went back to nursing and then really realised I don't want to be a nurse the rest of my life. Um, and we're starting to want to go home. So my brother and I decided we'd go to South America. So where, we went. Where in South America did you go? So we started in Ecuador. We landed in Quito and we went right up to the Colombian border and went deep into the jungle and stayed with a tribe there on the Colombian border. Yeah, it was amazing. So there was my brother and I and another couple. How did you organise that? So we had guides. We had two guides 
and we found them, uh, I can't even remember where. So, yeah, it was a massive trip. It was like a um, 12-hour bus ride. We, were, we had to sit on top of the roof of the bus, so my brother and I on our backpacks on the roof of the bus. <laughs> For 12 um, hours. Yeah, yeah, through the Amazon jungle, when I think about it. So these really dirt roads with massive holes and people getting on and off with machetes and snakes in jars and, yeah, it was a eye-opening experience um, and going through these military checkpoints with dudes with machine guns, there's a lot of corruption and as gringos we were kind of worried. We looked, my brother had a beard and we had all pretty old clothes on, which I think worked in our favour. But, yeah, so I can't remember how we found these guides, but it was a big bus ride and then we had to walk through. That There was a massive protest with these tyres burning and I can't remember what was happening. I was young and naive, but they were protesting about, I think America was sanctioning something around the American dollar, so they didn't like mm. Americans. And then these people shouting, no, Americana, and we had to walk through them to get to this town, um, Lago Agria, I think it was called. And this town was really close to the Colombian border, so lots of, so the the hotels, really old hotels, were guarded by these men with machine guns. There were kids coming up and trying to steal food off plates, and it was it was a pretty scary place, actually. So from there... Um, I think we must have driven in a car, really shocking roads, and then a long time in a dugout canoe up the Amazon River. And it was awesome, just like a day of being on the dugout canoe. And it was amazing to see the water change from this dirty colour to this clear, beautiful Amazon and just to see the the wildlife and um yeah we swam on the amazon river in the amazon river like because we've been traveling for a few days and he's like you want to go for a swim and we were trusting them so yeah sure so we hopped in the water then we get out and he goes okay do you want to fish for some piranhas so and then he's showing us where the crocodiles were so that was an amazing experience to stay with the tribe and um to kind of have, there was a medicine woman there mm. and it was just a small, but staying in their wooden huts, like there was tarantulas on the roof and them showing us different plant medicines and I never did an ayahuasca journey. I was I'm a very sensitive person. I used to feel lots of spirits and things from a young age, so I was like I'm not going to mess with that, mm. but they would kind of, yeah, it was it was an amazing time. Um, we were in with the tribe, I think, for about a week, and then we went back through Quito, travelled through Quito, went down through um, Peru and Bolivia, and then out through Brazil. So went to the Salt Lakes and Machu Picchu, and yeah, it was a amazing frightening journey at many times I was reading a book at the time called how to live this year as if it's your last which was actually really helpful because <laughs> it was all about just embracing each day 
But yeah, it was when I look back now and I tell my kids stories, it's like, oh my God, what an adventure that was. Like we rode push bikes down the world's most dangerous road and um, yeah, walked through. Oh, in in um, Brazil, in Rio, we went to a party at a favela, which is, you know, their kind of slum areas yeah. and went to a football game and so I was often terrified, but I knew I was alive. It was very <laughs> a sense of being very alive and very I remember ticking off each day on my calendar and just, oh, gosh, I've survived another day. Like it kind of felt like each day something could happen. Like we, um, yeah, it was intense but amazing. Did you, do you think you felt more alive? Oh, definitely, definitely. Even when I think about it, I can, the hair's on the back of my neck, mm. alive in a, in a frightened way. Right. Um, I've told this story before in the podcast, but yeah. I met a lady from South Africa at a clinic in Kabucha, somewhere near you there, you know, years ago. And that night yeah. she was in the clinic and that night we went to dinner and I ended up sitting beside her and she'd been in Australia for seven years. And I said, so how do you like Australia compared to South Africa? And she said, oh, the energy's different. And I thought she meant the energy's better, you know, like it's this cool, beachy, laid back, vibe, whatever. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, there's just less of it. She said, when I get off the plane in South Africa, I can feel the energy in the air. Mm. And I said, so what, what do you think is the cause of that? And she looked me in the eye and she said, oh, that's easy. Every man and animal in South Africa knows today's the day I could die. Yeah, yeah. I reckon that's the same in South America and definitely mm. in Brazil, in Rio, like the, the air was electric mm. and I remember feeling that and the excitement of that and the trepidation of that and how yeah. aware that makes you. You know, you've, you've, you just have to be in the moment. You just have to be aware of where you are and who's around you and what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's this real aliveness, I think. Mm, very somatic experience. Mm. So after, <laughs> yes. your big, after, after your big trip to South America, then uh, then what crazy turns did your life take? Then I went back to London and then I came home. And I remember arriving home and feeling a bit like a tourist in my town of Brisbane and mm. um, and finding it hard to relate to friends because they hadn't been anywhere and I, I'd, you know, really changed. And sorry, you go. I was going to say that the, the old saying is leaving and coming back is not the same as never having left. Yeah. Yeah. I, in that time I was really unsettled. I nearly went back overseas. Um, I started nursing again, realised I really didn't want to do nursing Remember I went to uh, Woodford, a folk festival, and saw a woman doing Hawaiian massage. So I studied that for a little bit, did kahuna. That was amazing. Or Again, really good for getting me to be in my body and to feel my body and to feel okay with touch. Um, and then I started my yoga apprenticeship here 
So I did a two-year full-time apprenticeship here. So I had four teachers and there was um, four other apprentices. So there was five of us. And that apprenticeship meant that we had to do two hours of yoga every day. We had to meditate every day and we had to observe a class. And then on Saturdays, we had yoga philosophy and we had to sit around and talk about how we felt. And um, that was, I'm so grateful for that experience and those teachers, because I think I was quite resistant. And, um, and they just changed how, my, how I thought about the world. Um, and they, I guess it started there of me noticing my own thinking and how, uh, how hard I was on myself. So I remember one of my teachers asked, we had to keep a journal and he said, I want you to write down what you notice yourself, say to yourself when you're, we had to adjust. So he would teach the class and then we would adjust the poses. So we would put people's bodies in in the pose correctly and um it was eye-opening like because all of my self-talk was so negative like Mm. it was things like oh you're so shit at that or you should have done that better and and he said this amazing thing to me he said he said you know even though it's negative it's still your ego and he said your ego is not always positive he said it can be negative too. And he said, and while you're in that voice, you're unable to be present with the person you're working on. And that just was like a a Zen Cohen, you know, like it just kind of really reached me and made me realise how that negative thinking was still me being all about me and it wasn't helpful. And it did stop me being able to be present to the person I was working with. And it really helped. So then I would practice just being present. And I remember, and he kind of would teach us how to do that. Like he'd be like, you know, when you're driving, just drive. Notice that your hands are on the wheel. And if a thought comes in, it's like, hello, old friend, come and take a seat beside me. I don't know if what you're saying is true. What I know right now is I'm indicating to turn right. So just started that practice of learning to be present. In that uh, yoga teacher training, we had to do a 10-day Vipassana course as well. So that's that 10 days of silent meditation. How was that? And, you know, it was like the first holiday I'd ever had. Um, So it was really challenging those first four days because you – they encourage you not to have eye contact and um, it's it's hours of sitting. So you're sitting and with Vipassana you have a voice kind of guiding you through, uh, giving your mind something to do. Um, so you're silent but the room's not silent. Yeah, yeah, there's a big speaker with a voice kind of telling okay, you what okay, to do. Yeah. So... Um, but we weren't allowed to, they encourage you not to move, not to do yoga. So you just had to kind of be with what came up. And, yeah, those first four days were hard. I, the turning point for me was I was going through, going on a walk, on a break. And I remember noticing that I wasn't worried about anything. And then I noticed myself worry that I wasn't worried 
And then I remember thinking, that's insane, Jane. You know, like, why would you worry about not having anything to worry about? Worry about. Yeah. And it just showed me this pattern that I'd had all my life of just always being worried. And so it was uh, really helpful, that Vipassana. It was challenging in one way in that it made me more sensitive. So from a child I had always felt spirits. I used to make my little brother sleep with me. <laughs> and I, I used to get quite overwhelmed with the feeling of these beings and after the Vipassana that opened up even more, which was challenging. So I went and saw, tried to find different people to understand what to do with that because it felt intrusive. It felt like these beings could get inside me, like it didn't feel like a... You know, some people say, oh, you know, I felt supported. That was never my experience. Right. Um, and I went went to my teachers about it and they were like, oh, I'm not that sensitive. I've never had that experience. Um, I went to a kinesiologist about it and he was amazing. He was really helpful. He kind of um, helped me. I'm going to sound really out there now, Warwick, but he really helped me work with what was coming so he taught me how to I guess speak to that spirit and help it so and he said to me he said you're one of these rare people and he said you're like a, a boat with its light on out on a dark ocean so he said lost souls are kind of drawn to you and so he helped me see um what this spirit, because I'd had this feeling I would brush my teeth at home and I'd feel like someone was trying to climb up my back. And he kind of helped me. It was a miner down a mine shaft, so he kind of helped me work to help that soul move on, I guess. And um, so when I was with him doing it, it felt as real as you and I talking. And it felt good when I went home it got worse, it got it got a lot stronger. Mm. And, again, I got really overwhelmed by it. Um, and he said to me, I went back to him and I said, I can't, because he would kind of say, you know, imagine the light, and I just couldn't feel like I could do that. And um, and some of the souls that, like, I came and what they showed me was just really intense and um he said to me he said you know you can choose you can choose to help people in that world or you can choose to help people in this world and I, I remember saying I wanted I'll work with people in this world because I felt really wacky you know experiencing what I always had from being a little kid like mum used to say you've just got an overactive imagination and and even going to my teachers and saying I need to turn this down or switch it off and them all saying you know it's fine and other people saying just put salt around your windows or <laughs> um but I think what helped the most was when I got more and more more solid in myself and more solid in my body and I realized I could say no or mm. I could kind of yeah send them off so 
Yeah, so in as part of that apprenticeship, we did the Vipassana and then my teacher had a Zen master as a teacher called Hogan-san, who was a 70-year-old Japanese man who'd been a monk for 50 years, and I started learning from him as well. So he, he trained in Zen meditation. And Zen is different to Vipassana in that Zen you're just watching your breath because Zen they believe that when you die you don't have a mantra or when you're dying you don't have a mantra you may not be able to see a colour or something to follow, but they are like, you've always got your breath. So um, Hogan's son was very helpful. I remember going to him with this and saying, being all emotional and upset and saying, you know, I'm having these spirits because I did a seven-day Zen meditation with him and that's kind of they want you to sit in full lotus and that is intense because you you don't have a voice. You have no one talking to you. It's total silence. Your eyes are open in Zen. They call it open looking. So you're looking about an, a metre and a half in front of you and you're just with yourself and your breath. And, and um, your full lotus. And your full lotus, which man, and then, and then your numb legs. How long you lotus for? About an hour. Ooh, <laughs> Yeah, and then, yeah, your legs go to sleep. I don't know if you, it's the worst feeling and you know your legs going to sleep and you can feel the pins and needles. <laughs> um, yeah, so Hogan's I can only get about a, I can only get into about a quarter of a lotus, so <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like being yeah. a full lotus. Yeah, I was young and flexible. I don't, and, and I think I know Hogan's son, was kind of more relaxed as he mellowed. So, but Zen, I, I think of the people that did Zen and they were the most beautiful people, I think, because it was so hard. You know, there's no arrogance, there's no, because you're just sitting with yourself and that's, it's, it's intense to really be with yourself in that, for, for seven days, for, God, it was eight or ten hours a day of sitting. So, In yeah. your um, Vipassana one, and you said yes, one day you went for a walk and suddenly everything was quiet, like you felt peaceful. How many days in was that? Four. Four okay. days in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's and where the last was- few days... I was going to say, how was the rest We're of the great. days after that compared to the first? I bet the first four sucked, did they? <laughs> totally, totally. The first four, really hard. And it was lovely. Our teachers prepared us for that. They said day three, day four, you'll want to leave, um, you know, all your your mind. So my teachers would always talk about how your mind will do anything to keep being in charge it'll put you to sleep it'll talk to you it'll play all these tricks so I was really grateful that I had teachers that kind of taught us about that so we so I kind of had a sense of what was happening and yeah just knew to stay with it I guess and I'd done we'd done a a year's worth of yoga and meditation before I went to Vipassana so and in that I'd had a lot of emotions come up and because you know, doing yoga and going deep into your body, you do 
you, you do have these emotions just come out of nowhere. And I, I wouldn't, that's kind of what led me to, to train in Gestalt because I was like with the yoga my stuff would come up but I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and that's where, yeah, I went to study the Gestalt training and to kind of learn, understand more about that. So that was next in your long list of qualifications here, the Gestalt training? It was, yeah. I went and studied Gestalt. So my still, my skin still was pretty bad. I was about 26 and I went to a natural therapist and they said to me, what do you do with your anger? And I said, oh, I never get angry because I I didn't really (laughs) ever experience myself as getting angry. And they said, I think you need to go and see a therapist. And they recommended a Gestalt therapist. And so I went to this Gestalt therapist and I feel sorry for that Gestalt therapist because I had, I just had no, even after doing, you know, yoga and looking into myself a lot overseas, I still didn't have much self-awareness. So I remember her saying to me, you know, what do you need? And I had no idea. What do you like? I had to really think about it. And yeah, so then I started studying Gestalt and yeah, so I was in a room full of, I think there was 12 of us to start with, 12 other women in my group. And the Gestalt process is a lot of group process. So every week on a Tuesday night you go and do group, which would involve a lot of us just looking at the carpet and because it's working with what emerges in the moment, which used to be really uncomfortable. So it was it was learning to kind of, yeah, be with yourself, be with the other. It was a beautiful opportunity to learn how I impacted other people and how I was impacted by other people because I had this kind of deluded, or deluded thought, I guess, that, um, you know, when I didn't have a sense of self or when I was easygoing, that I, I thought, oh, that's easy for people to be in relationship with me. I didn't realise it's frustrating because no one ever knows where they stand with me. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so then I started my Gestalt journey and that was it took me five years. I had my, I fell pregnant with my son at the end of my first year and I didn't expect to get pregnant. I didn't think I could have kids, so that was a bit of a surprise. And, um, yeah, I had, I, I must, yeah, I had him in my second year and that was hard because I was, you know, we're sitting in groups talking about how people had been screwed up by their parents and I was starting my parenting journey. So I remember putting a lot of pressure on myself about being a perfect parent. I'd also um, started getting really curious about attachment. So I did my master's thesis on attachment theory. Mm. Yeah, and what That's led a whole nother that? podcast. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Attachment is so powerful. But what led me to study that was, one, my kids, but also at around the same time um, a young man had thrown his child off the gateway bridge and I remembered having this thought of I'd had, I had both my kids at that stage and I know I'd felt frustration, you know, when you just, I'd just put Eva down and Jack would cry or so I was like, I understand his frustration, but I was really curious about what stops me 
what stops me that didn't stop him that day? Mm. And that's mm. what led me to getting really curious about attachment theory and I guess trauma and, yeah, being human. Yeah. If you were, if, if someone listening was not, had no idea what you're talking about when you talk about attachment theory, could you give us yeah. the, the short version? Yeah, sure. So attachment theory in a very short way is all about how important our attachment to our primary caregivers are and how, mm, gosh, how if we don't have that safe, attuned or good enough parenting early on, it actually shapes our brain and our wiring for connection um, and to be in relationships ourselves. And there's different types of attachment. So there's that anxious attachment where where you just are always worried that the other's going to leave you so you cling. There's that avoidant attachment, which is a little bit more me, where you kind of um, will push the other away and be very independent. And then there's secure attachment where you're kind of comfortable in yourself and you're comfortable with people coming and going. So you're not codependent? <laughs> no, no. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't mean you. I mean when you're in that, oh. that secure attachment, <laughs> you you know, yes. you, 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 your self-worth is not validated by someone else's thoughts about you or being with you or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you kind of get have that sense of self, I think, and that trust that you your relationships will come and go and that you'll be okay. Right. The whole I am enough thing. Yeah. So, you know what, I'm, I might actually jump ahead to your questions because I, th- I think the, the way your mind works that these questions will take a while and I don't want to leave them to the very end. Um, so as you listeners at home know, I, I, I send out 20 questions to my guests and they choose five to seven questions to answer on air. So I'm going to go through your questions here, Jane. First one you chose was if you could spread a message across the world, one that everyone would listen to, what would that be? I think uh, just what you said, that we're all enough just as we are, and to give ourselves a break, just to kind of lighten up and relax and take the time to see the trees, smell the roses, trust that what's for us will will come. <laughs> There's a lot to that. There is. You know, there's the whole... There's the whole enough thing and you become aware that, you know, you have these negative thoughts or whatever, but then there's the whole fully integrating it to where you actually believe it. <laughs> that's an, I think that's another, another whole journey. I reckon too. I think it, it takes a lifetime is my belief. And that we, I guess that's it too, that, the reminder that we do have a lifetime, you know, to kind of accept all the parts of ourselves and get to know ourselves and 
that it's not I used to think and I hear a lot of people say it you know I'll just do this and then I'll be fixed and I'll just do this and then I'll be okay and it's letting go of that and just you've been in my head haven't you (laughs) (laughs) I just just can relate to it myself I remember Yeah. yeah I remember that and reading something Mr. Iyengar saying, which made me realise, oh, there's no race. I don't have to rush to fix all my shit. I, I can just accept where I'm at right now. And a realisation too that you can only work on what you have the capacity in your nervous system and in your body to, to work on. Like that's been a real realisation for me too. Like there's such a wisdom in our bodies to know that, okay, you're ready to process this now. And so it'll bring forward what you need to look at to start healing and that there's a real wisdom to know what you're ready for and what you're not ready for. You know, I think think that takes a while to get, to understand, or at least for me, like for for me, the long, the, probably the biggest fear I've had for quite a while, working through my stuff and, you know, getting my emotions working again is, what if I lose my mind? Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Did you ever have, did you ever have that? To- like- totally, totally. You know how I was talking about when I felt all the, uh, when I was really hypersensitive, I felt like I had lost my mind. I felt like, man, people think I'm crazy. Um, now I just know that I'm crazy and am learning to. <laughs> you're good with it. <laughs> well, I feel like the more I've let myself just be myself, to certain people that looks nuts because they're not comfortable with it because they don't allow it in themselves, you know, and I'm okay with that most of the time. And I think having some of the experiences with the somatic experiencing with the freeze when my birth trauma came up, I remember having a real fear of, holy shit, I feel like I'm going to lose it Um, because my whole body was responding. My whole body was shaking. Um, and, and I had no control over it. Luckily, I had some really great therapists to support me through it. Um, was that a long period of time? That I processed it over a long no, period like, of No, like when you'd get to where your body would be shaking and stuff. Was that like days or was it hours or was it minutes, moments? No, what was that? it was probably minutes, minutes. Mm. And it was, was it but, during therapy? Yeah, during yeah, okay, therapy. So yeah, yeah. Sharing therapy, um, except for once. Once I think it was a few days, and I couldn't settle the the shakiness. It was just like my body was still in that. It's like my body hadn't arrived to the present moment. It was still back in a memory. So, Jane, next question: What have you changed in the past five years that helped shaped who you have become? Mm. Yeah, I loved this question. I think. I have learnt to let go of worrying so much about what other people think about me. I think I've allowed 
myself to be seen more. Um, I think I have, yeah, just given myself permission to, to be myself, just to be my authentic self and just trusted that the right people will find me and vice versa. So I think that's been the biggest change in the last five years. And and this awareness that um, life's short. I don't have time just to stuff around and play it safe. But yeah, it's to go for things and to try things, to live a full life. I think that's what's really changed, to be less safe, to let myself fully experience shame, I guess. Be your full Janeness. Yeah, yes, yes. As our other Jane friend, Jane Pike, says, don't half-ass anything. Use your whole ass. <laughs> yes, yes, that's it. Yep, take my. Okay, next question. So where do you go? What do you do to relieve stress uh, or recharge? Or where do you find the motiv- motivation for what you do? Hmm, so... For me, I so recently um, my son was in an accident and um, he got badly burned over his face, his eyes, his ears, his arms, his legs, his chest. And uh, it was horrific and terrifying. And he was totally um, innocent in the, it was someone else's actions that created the burn, the burns. And so when I'd come home from the hospital, I would just lay on the earth under a tree and that was so helpful. Like I, I didn't find talking to people helpful. I just found that reliable solidity of just the ground, the grass, just watching the trees, just bringing my mind back to the simplicity of the bees are still moving from flower to flower. The tree, the birds are still doing their thing. Just kind of that simplicity or just being in the paddock and listening to the horses chew and move each other off feed and just that really basic, basic daily things that happen no matter what happens outside. It's... You know, when you've, um, I remember having this experience when I had gave birth to my kids and when my dad died, when you go through this massive experience and same with Jack and you're so changed but you realise the world's still just doing its thing. It's still just moving and people are still getting cranky in traffic and and kind of how weird that is that that can be happening at the same time so that's what really helps me what really helped me with Jack was all that yoga training all that training in SE I I was so grateful for how it supported me to be there for Jack because Jack was in immense pain um and yeah just how that training of 
being with what's present and just even being able to support him to send his mind to where the pain wasn't and to deepen his breath and man I was so grateful for that training with him um but my motivation for doing what I do is I really love people and as a therapist I believe there's good in everyone and that's what I look for when I'm working with somebody like where and then I look for that good and I then work to help them see it. And so I think my motivation to do what I do is that I do believe in people and I love the earth and I feel like if I can contribute in that small way by doing the work that I do, then that makes my life, I don't, it feels like a real, a need almost in my life to be of service to help people. So it feeds something in me as well. But, yeah. That kind of brings it back to a question I meant to ask before and didn't ever get to was how did you get involved in equine-assisted therapy? You said you had a, had a session one time and it kind of blew your mind. And Yeah. Yes, I was at a retreat with a friend. And I saw this equine therapy thing. And by that stage, I'd been doing yoga for a long time. I'd studied gestalt. I was studying art therapy, so I kind of thought I had my shit together. <laughs> and I had this equine therapy session and far out, it just got straight to the core of my issues. And I, I was just like, wow, I want to learn this. And um, as it was, Dewey Freeman was coming out from the States like a month later and I went down and trained with him and, I, yeah, I, I just felt like I'd come home. I just, just my whole body knew. Um, even though, like, I didn't own a horse, I hadn't, my neighbours had had horses, I'd never owned horses. It was so out of left field. It was so weird. And even the, the way the horses responded to me at that training, like um, I had just weaned my daughter and these horses were weanlings and they just kept coming in and pressing into me. And um, there was three or four of them and I was really overwhelmed by it but quite frozen in, in that spot. And I remember Dewey Freeman coming in because then the mare started coming towards me. And I just didn't know, I didn't even have capacity to do this. And he just came and stood in front and he said, what's happening? And I was, I didn't even think I had words. And uh, I think I just shook my head and he said, does this happen to you a lot where people just override your boundaries? And I think I just burst into tears. And he said, I'm just going to go and get you to stand. And he stood me near this beautiful old grey mare old Stormy, I think, and he said, I just want you to get a sense of her energy and what it's like to be grounded and in your body. And, yeah, so that was kind of the start of my journey. I remember asking people there, how do I, what kind of horse do I get? How do I know, you know, where do I look? And this one man from Tasmania said, your horse will find you, which sounded a bit out there. 
But um, sure enough, I got given a horse called Phoenix. He's still with me today. And I feel like he's really helped me create what I've created, this horse Phoenix, is he would not let me shrink around him, Phoenix. Like he would really demand me show up and be authentic and be my full self. And um, he scared the crap out of me when I first got him. That's that's how I um, met Angie Wicks and started working with her. Um, And he taught me not to make everything emotional. Like because it was interesting timing because my son was two or three and in psychotherapy we talk about the age of two being the age of the will, you know, when the child realises they can say no. And I think because of my gestalt training and noticing how all these people had been hurt by their families and knowing what it was like to be a sensitive kid, every I was always worried about how what I said or did affected Jack. And I remember doing that with Phoenix and Angie just calling that and saying, you can't do that, and how liberating it was when I took that out with my kids and with the horses and just was like, oh, my God. So, yeah. So, yeah, I got given Phoenix. Um, that I got given Phoenix. So I yeah, started. You, said, you know, you get the horse you need sort of thing, your horse will find you. How did Phoenix find you? <laughs> so I was having um, horsemanship lessons and with a grey mare called Penny and a, and a woman, and I loved this mare called Penny, and then this woman got this horse Phoenix, and I didn't like him. And I knew I had this sense that he was going to be my horse, and I just resisted it because I think he pushed my buttons. He saw right through me, I think. And she had to go away to Darwin, and she was like, do you want Phoenix? And I was like, uh and I said to my husband, Finn, given a horse, you go see him, see what you think. And my husband loved him. And that's how Phoenix became my horse. So, yeah. Oh, my God. It, the sun's just gone down. I looked out the window and the sky has gone orange. It's crazy here. Um, I was um, going to ask you about, so are you mostly doing equine-assisted therapy these days? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much that's what I do. It, do it as a therapist and um, some room-based somatic experiencing, and then I teach the equine-assisted therapy too. So you certify people? Is that what you do? Yeah. So I went through the process of becoming a registered training organisation in Australia, which, God, lucky I was naive. I don't think I'd do it again. It was massive. Um, just all the red tape and, yeah, so... Oh, man. So, but I'm grateful I did because it kind of protects students and protects me. Yeah, so I deli- my training is a 19-month diploma of counselling where they specialise in equine-assisted mental health. And I did it that way because when I worked with people, I just saw how quickly the horses got to people's big themes and their core issues and how also how people would dissociate or freeze around a horse and I feel like it takes skill to keep the horse safe and the person safe so and I feel like it's important as a practitioner to be embodied too because I I know now I use my body a lot as a tool 
to kind of feel into the it's like you know you talk about a feel with horses I feel like you develop a feel with humans as well and as an equine therapist I'm feeling into the horses and their state shifts and I'm feeling into the human and their state shifts and the horses state shifts tell me a lot about the person before sometimes I've felt that state shift yeah kind of like a lie detector yeah totally totally and it's I think it's liberating for people you know, when it's not just me and them in a room, when it's them and a horse or a herd of horses, I like best working with a herd of horses and where they're all responding to this person and they're showing this person this same relational pattern. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of, it makes it, uh, they show the relational pattern but they do it in a gentle way, you know, and and then they give the person a chance to do something different and to try it again, which I love. So the person just needs to change something, change a thought or take a breath or feel their feet and the horses will respond. I love that it's that moment-by-moment response again. Do you have like a certain demographic you work with or is it a lot of... No, now I I work with a lot of um, people that have had that early relational trauma, so a lot of people that have been through that domestic violence or early sexual abuse. Um, Yes, so most of my clients probably have complex PTSD and, um, yeah, that's probably my demographic now. I used to work at a retreat with a lot of corporate CEOs, so a lot of high flyers. And they were great for me to learn my my skills with because they don't let you get away with anything. <laughs> and they really want you to know your stuff. And they operate from their head. So for me it was just about, it taught me a lot to really follow their body and bring their attention to their body because most of them were way smarter than me. So I'm like, man, I'm not competing with you about who could be the smartest. But if you're here to learn about yourself you know, and to become more aware of how you impact others, like I would have a lot of um, big CEOs coming and saying, I can't keep my people or my people go. And it, it would be fascinating because they'd come in and the horses would just turn their butts to them or pin their ears and and then just supporting that person to be to get vulnerable and to get curious and to notice what's happening and, and what they're bringing to the interaction unconsciously. Yeah, so I'd get heaps of that and heaps of people that were super successful but would say, I don't know who I am. And so just kind of with the horses, that opportunity to get a sense of self and to get a sense of what it's like to be in their body and what it's like to relate with another being body to body rather than mind to mind. So, yeah. You know, you said before when you were talking about the the wealthy people you work for in England, uh, you said that the guy told you that people think having a lot of money is is you know it'd be fun or whatever but you're worried about losing it and they they do say that um you know when you don't have any money you're worried about getting it and then when you get money you're worried about keeping it (laughs) 
Um, yeah. But and the, I mentioned that because some people think having a lot of money would be a good thing. Um, but then also some people would think, oh, this guy's a CEO. He must have his shit together. You know what I mean? And when you said yes. people are very successful and don't have a mm. sense of themselves. And, 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 mm. and, it's a, and it's probably a pretty lonely place to be. And on, from the outside, by all intents and purposes, they look very successful and they've got everything that yeah. somebody else would want. But it's yeah. not. It's not that. Yeah, that definitely. And it was uh, you saying lonely. That was something they would often say. I feel alone. So they'd be married. They'd have kids, and they'd be like, "I just don't know who I am. I've created this whole thing because I thought that's what you're meant to do, and I just don't know who I. I realize I'm miserable. And yeah, and huge rates of depression and anxiety and because they'd learnt to override or detach from the information their body was bringing. Again, like from that gestalt, we get very curious about what's the need underneath the behaviour or or we talk about a cycle of experience. So we talk about um, the start of that cycle is a sensation And then the next part is that you become aware of the sensation and then you mobilise towards kind of meeting the need that the sensation arose from and then you meet the need, you get satisfied from it and then you withdraw back into a moment. But with a lot of us, we've learnt the body brings a sensation and we've learnt to desensitise so we don't then become aware of the sensation so we can never meet the need that the sensation's bringing. So we kind of stay in this stuck place or fixed gestalt, we call it in gestalt, of being frustrated or this internal battle that we're totally unaware of because we're not realising that these sensations that are uncomfortable are trying to bring us information about needs that are wanting to be met or parts of us that are wanting to be seen. And that's where we, what we say addiction kind of is where you have that split between sensation and awareness. We reach for the cigarette or the beer or turn the TV on or scroll and it's, it's all unconscious. And so with Gestalt we work to kind of build that bridge between the sensation coming and then becoming aware of the sensation and then being able to mobilise to kind of meet the need of that sensation. Mm. You want to hear a funny sensation story? So I've been, yeah, sure. I've spent the last four or five years uh, working on having my emotions become unstuck with, with not a lot of success. Yeah. Um, this year I'm doing some internal family systems type stuff that's been quite good, but awesome. it's been slowly, slowly, very slowly cracking me open, but... I was reading a book one time and they're talking about, it was about somatic things, but they were talking about Wall Street stockbrokers. The ones that make the most money are the ones who can feel their own heartbeat. Mm. And it, was, it had to do with your gut knows sooner than your brain. Your gut can know way ahead of time. And so these guys are making trades like that. Like they look at the thing and they guess, no. Yeah. They, don't, they don't look at the thing and go, yeah, well, their stock went up 60% yeah, last year, but then it, you know, they've got a new CEO. None of that. There's just this gut thing. 
Well, here a while ago, I, probably a month, six weeks ago, I started feeling this feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. Mm. And I had it for about, oh, a couple of weeks. First I thought I was hungry. And then I mm-hmm. thought I was ill. And then it's like, no, it's just a feeling of dread. Anyway, about two and a half weeks maybe after it came there, I had the emotional breakthrough I've been trying to get for five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And guess what? It went away. Yeah. It was yeah. like it knew this was coming and I didn't know it was coming and there's no, there's no way anybody could have foreseen how it actually happened. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's just amazing. Your, your, your body can – it's an amazing uh, uh, piece of equipment that knows things we don't know. Ah, totally, totally. And I think of your body must have finally felt safe enough and that, you know, there was enough capacity in you to start bringing that, you know, like to allow the sensation and then to allow the emotion. Yeah. And I, and I, I feel like it's important to trust that, you know, there is a wisdom because I think we can be hard on ourselves and be like, oh, I'm always in my head and and I guess in gestalt we'll go, God, thank God you've got that. And internal family systems the same, you know, thank God you've got that. Thank God you've got that capacity to dissociate or to have a cigarette or to resist or do whatever the management strategy or creative adjustment is. Because you're still here, you know, you've survived. And over time you can support those parts to feel more and more safe so more and more of you can show up. Yeah, I was going to write that down, creative strategy. I love that. Is that what the word was, creative strategy? Creative adjustment. Creative adjustment, sorry. It's a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Because it's, it's gentle. It's like how you creatively adjusted to your environment. Yes, it's not a, there's no accusation in it. It's not. No. Yeah, it's, it's a very gentle term. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how can uh, people find out about more about what you guys are doing up there? You guys have a website? We do. It's www.equineassistedtherapyaustralia.com.au. Don't forget the .au. Yes. <laughs> and anywhere else, do you guys have any social media stuff going on? Yeah, sorry. Um, Equine Assisted Therapy Australia, just on Facebook and same on Instagram. Perfect. You know, one yeah. question you didn't, you didn't um, choose that I wanted to ask you about because I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll be good. Do you have a favourite book that you recommend to people? <laughs> Not a favourite book as in your favourite book, but a book that you yeah. tell more people about than any other book. Like, you should read this book. I think The Body Keeps the Score is great, but I know for myself it's it's a hard read. I find that a hard, like it's amazing information, but I find I'm heavy. I need to watch comedy. I need to read a bit and then watch a bit of comedy and, like, it's a lot to digest and process. And... um Gosh, I loved, I, I did love The Alchemist. It's a really simple, you know, I don't know how to say his name, Paolo Coelho or something like that. 
Yeah. Um, oh, and I just what came into my mind is, you know, that it's more a poem, The Invitation. Oh, by uh, Arroyo Mountain Dreamer. Yeah, yeah, I mm. love that. So, and I loved Bruce Perry's book, The Boy Who Was Raised by a Dog. That's more trauma. Yes, um, lots of trauma stuff in that one. Yeah. Did you read, <laughs> yes. um, did you read uh, um, What Happened to You by Bruce Perry? Yeah, yeah, I loved that too. Yeah, yeah, I just find he's, the way he writes really, except I love books with stories. Um, I find I can access them more. Gosh, my mind's gone blank. Um, I love books. Yeah, I I, you know another one that had a big impact on me. Now that I think of it, is it's called The Journey Home by um, Cryon. I think it was like it was channeled, but I remember it having a huge impact on me. Oh, it's it's a channeled book. Yeah, and it's just kind of really helped me. At, and the journey of souls, I think, was another one. It just helped me with. I don't. It's kind of helped me form beliefs about what happens when you die, and and just why we're here. And it really helps me actually as a therapist when I hear horrific stories, and it helps me kind of not overthink or get overwhelmed. I I kind of just. It's put these beliefs in place that help me, but like I said, focus on the, the good in the person and let go of the stuff that my mind will never understand. You know how people can hurt people. Yeah, and that, that's Journey of Souls, is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. Yeah, yeah. I read it a long time ago. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one, but it sounds like a good book, especially... You know, especially talking about death and what happens after and, you know, because if you can get that sorted out, then life's not so scary. Yeah. And I, I remember when my dad died, um, my dad had early onset dementia, so I was kind of relieved when he passed away because I, I couldn't reach him through that dementia. And um, it was a beautiful experience that kind of, um, backed up a lot of the stuff I'd believed and read. And because Dad would lay there and he would say things like, I know I've just got to get over that bridge to the other side. And he would see, like he'd, he'd speak to like aunties and different people. And, yeah, yeah. And he, and he knew because he said it's time to say goodbye. And he thanked me for the life I'd had with him and, yeah, and then when he did die and just kind of ah, just a feeling of relief and we um, brought him home, we had his coffin at home and the room that he was in just felt full of angels. I don't know how to describe it. So I don't know, just those beliefs and then watching my dad transition through that death process it, they just seemed to, it seemed to help. And mm, I, it, it was like I didn't fight his dying either. You know, yeah, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, in the Western society, we, you know, we 
we don't talk about death. We kind of, mm. you know, like it, it's it's illegal to see a dead person, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, you don't, and and so we, yeah. It, it's kind of like we give us the heebie-jeebies about it. Whereas a lot of cultures, it's not, it's not so. And they have, yeah. and they oh. seem to, they seem to be more spiritual cultures that are more connected to, you know, that that we're all part of the cycle of life and. Yes. Yeah. And I know seeing my dad's dead body and, like, I know when I first saw it, I remember the visceral response, but then, like, because we had him home for a few days and then the funeral and I remember kissing him on the cheek and feeling, oh, he's not there anymore in that body and it was so helpful. I, I don't even know how to describe how it was helpful, but I just remember it being really helpful, I think, to actually let go of that physical form and to realise what I loved about that physical form wasn't inside that physical form anymore. So I think we do ourselves a disservice how we do death in the West. Like I think, yeah, I just um, I'm really grateful that Mum did it the way she did it because I think it really helped with the grieving process. And even my kids, my kids were, they were young at the time. <laughs> they were running around putting things in granddad's coffin. <laughs> so kind of just normalising that, that death for them, you know, like this whole process of life and death. And, and I loved, you know, that Buddhist philosophy that if you don't embrace death, you can't fully embrace life you cling to life you know and that's what we do in the west we we take life for granted and yet we're scared to fully live it and whereas in different cultures where they're embracing death every day they're they're, they're acknowledging hey i could die today so they fully live so yeah what it's all about <laughs> well yeah jane it's been a wonderful conversation thank you so much for uh joining me on the podcast um and hopefully i'll get to catch up with you in australia sometime yes thanks so much warwick i'm really grateful and so grateful for all you're doing just to change to support people and growth you know what you were talking you're talking earlier about being curious and at Mm. the um podcast summit in australia recently jane pike uh, I said something, uh, J- Jane Pike's always on about accepting a compliment and, and I had said that, uh, you know, people say, oh, you're so good at the podcast. I said, I don't think you're good at the podcast. And then she kind of said, but you've, you're wrong. You've got to accept that. And I'm like, oh, I think I said I don't, I don't try to be good at podcasts or some, the podcast, mm. something like that. And she kind of made me say, no, but you are. And I said, no, really what it is, I don't try to be, you know, I, mm. I don't think I've got interviewing skills or whatever I'm just curious that's the only mm. thing is mm. I'm curious you talk about oh I went to India went to South Africa uh, South America I want to know about who did you see what mm. was it like what did it smell like you know I'm just curious mm. and so mm. that's you talked a lot about curiosity before with patience and I just think that mm. curiosity is um, kind of keeping some of that childlike curiosity maybe is yeah. a good way to go through life I reckon too I'm still grateful. Thank you. We've been chatting for quite a while. Uh, Everybody at home, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. 
Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights. 